Welcome to Tax Break, a podcast on the tax law brought to you by the lawyers at Miller & Chevalier. I'm Steve Dixon, a tax litigator with Miller & Chevalier. As usual, I'm joined by my colleague, international tax and tax policy expert, Lauren Pons. And today we have our colleague, Mark Gerson, a repeat guest. Uh, Mark leads our tax policy practice at MNC. Hey, Mark. Good morning. Thanks for having me. So we're having Mark on today to discuss the 2021 Tax Policy Forecast Survey and its results. That survey is the firm's annual attempt to take the temperature of tax executives on what they think will happen with respect to tax policy and legislation in the upcoming year and years. As always, the idea behind Tax Break is to provide listeners with some perspective on select tax issues that we think are interesting. And as Lauren knows all too well, this is usually where I say we stay uh, high, high level uh, so you don't have to have a copy of the regs in front of you. Um, but this episode, it seems worth uh, pointing out that actually you probably should go and pull the tax policy <laughs> uh, forecast survey and print it out. It's uh, only 15 pages. It's a quick and easy read. Um, and so we'll put a link to the, the survey uh, results in our, in our uh, podcast description. So go ahead and print that out and certainly feel free to follow along as we, we go through it. Uh, as first, a disclaimer, tax break is not intended to be legal advice and you cannot rely on it as legal advice. Its contents reflect only the thoughts or opinions of its hosts and guests. So Mark, uh, this survey, is, you've been doing this survey for a while. About how many years has, have we been doing this survey with the National Foreign Trade Council? Thanks, Steve. Yeah, so we've been doing this is our 15th year. So this is the 15th annual survey. Um, and we've been lucky enough to partner with the National Foreign Trade Council, I would say, for the last decade on the survey. And tell me a little bit about how this sort of the genesis of the survey and, and sort of how the idea came about and, and how it's grown. Well, we really, you know, started out, you know, wanting to get something at the start of every year to take the temperature of our clients and of tax executives generally on the direction of tax policy and really trying to get to that intersection of what's going on from a tax perspective and matching that up with the political and the legislative environment. And so over the years, you know, we've refined the survey um, and really what we're trying to get is kind of, you know, what are tax executives thinking about? What are they most worried about? And then trying to match that up with with the legislative environment and what we see happening in, in the year ahead. Yeah. And Mark, tell us a little bit about how you, I mean, the, the questions are tailored every year. So tell us about the process of sort of designing the questions and coming up. There's some multiple choice elements to them. So how do, how do you go about doing that? Sure. So every year we get together, Lauren, myself, and our colleague, Jorge Castro, and try to think about kind of what the legislative environment is and what we anticipate it will be, um, and then try to marry that with what we think are kind of the most prevalent tax issues out there for the day. And a lot of it is dependent on you know, different years, different legislative environment, who's in control of the Congress, who's in charge of the White House. And so some years there's, you know, unbridled optimism for tax cuts and tax reform. And other years as the current year, there's a lot of concern about tax increases. 
Um, the other thing we really try to marry is kind of the political environment. So, you know, as you know, when we're in an election year, there are a lot more kind of politically based questions in a kind of a, with a new president or a new White House or new uh, Congress. There's always, you know, we try to talk about transition issues. Um, and so we really try to marry kind of what's going on currently with what we think are, the, you know, the big driving tax issues. And so this year, obviously, we're in a situation where control of both the presidency and, and Congress has, has switched over. So, uh, Lauren, what were your sort of expectations of in going into this about about the mood that, that tax executives would have about policy changes and reform? Well, I mean, it was it was hard to um, kind of forecast what people would feel without knowing the the outcome of the election. And so uh, for that reason, we, we waited um, until we knew, particularly with respect to the Georgia runoff elections and who was going to control the Senate. Um, we waited until once those outcomes were known, then it became clearer um, the ease with which President Biden would or would not be able to pursue his um, his his tax legislative agenda. And so, um, given that we knew that the Democrats were going to control both both chambers of the of Congress as well as the White House, then the tenor uh, really changed to focus on what tax legislative um, priorities they thought would actually be realistic or achievable um, within the next year or so, coupled with um, the understanding that COVID relief was going to be the primary driver of uh, at least the first set of uh, legislative action actions that the administration would take. And I think, Mark, you sort of uh, uh, characterized the 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 outlook this year is know, pessimistic or, or, or dour, at least in the sense of overall tax uh, tax increases or the likelihood of tax increases. So uh, how did the survey sort of align with that expectation, the results yeah. of the survey? No, I think it's consistent what we thought was, was the mood out there among tax executives and coming off, you know, President Biden, uh, winning the White House, running on a platform of, you know, these big policy initiatives um, like infrastructure and housing and education funded with tax increases, in addition to the overall deficit situation, which obviously has been exacerbated by, by the massive but necessary COVID spending. Um, I think our tax executives are very much on edge with respect to potential tax increases, you know, the, the Biden plan had these fundamental, you know, huge increases of, you know, big um, proposed increase in the corporate tax rate, um, similar big changes on individual and capital gains rates. And so um, I think even before getting to more kind of specific you know, tax increases in, let's say, the international area or specific to certain industries, I think the general view was to anticipate these really significant tax increases um, going into the year. Lauren, I know something we've talked about before was that, I mean, there's a sense in which this is not the sort of this this is a negative outcome for corporate taxpayers because they view the rate as likely to increase. But there's also a sense in which um, we saw some trepidation about corporations sort of 
trying to take full advantage of the the 21% rate because they always had a sort of a built-in expectation that the rate would would rebound. So, I mean, I, I guess I wanted to know your sort of thoughts on on the the optimism or pessimism reflected in the survey versus sort of the expectation that I think we've always had expressed by tax executives that they didn't expect 21% to be uh, the, the permanent state of affairs. Right. I, I, well, I think that the, there was a hope that the 21% rate would be perm- be the permanent state of affairs, but there's always um, a fear. I think in more recent years, especially with changes in, in leadership, that there's going to be kind of a complete 180 of some tax policies and, and, and a turnaround of walking back. Um, but to Mark's point, you know, President Biden was very clear on the campaign trail that he had some very big uh, policy priorities that are independent of tax, but that would be funded by tax. And so uh, that coupled with COVID, which nobody saw coming, um, but really, you know, it, we, we've been spending to, to combat the, the economic effects of the pandemic, um, you know, raising the rate will, will uh, I think, become a much much more of a reality as opposed to a fear um, this year. And so, you know, we're seeing it already in the UK. They released their budget. Um, they're proposing going from 19 to 25 percent in 2023. And so and that's a direct response to to the economic impacts of, of COVID, of the pandemic. Um, and so, you know, I, I do think that some of that rhetoric around, oh, we don't know if the rate's going to stay the same is just kind of a, a, a negative reinforcement way of saying to legislators, we want the rate to stay the same. Um, but but in in this climate, I think it's very tough. And so the the survey results reflect that that recognition that they probably will go up. And and I think right now, you know, th- there certainly will be efforts to fight a corporate tax increase or to lessen you know, what that increase is. But at the same time, I think there's a feeling that a lot of tax, tax executives feel resigned to the fact that there will be an increase. And so in addition to getting questions about kind of what that corporate rate increase will be, real, will it really be 28% or will it be, you know, kind of moderated somewhere in the middle to, you know, appease kind of moderate Senate Democrats? The question we're getting most often right now is, not will there be a tax, corporate tax increase, but when will it be effective? Um, and that's really effective date issues. I think on tax increases generally, but particularly on the corporate rate increase, are something we're increasingly getting questions. And there's a big concern about you know potential retroactivity to the beginning of this year. And th- that really is something that I think is really you know, taking up a lot of time and tax executives are concerned about it. They're worried about how to model it, how to report to their boards, what the potential risk is. And so that's been become an increasing, increasingly important issue. Well, let's actually turn to some of the results in the survey. I, I guess I, one question I have for, for you both is what, what, what surprised you in, in the answers from, from tax executives this year? Mark, you want to go first? Sure. Um, you know, obviously, I, I think one of the big, bigger kind of um, issues out there, other than the Biden tax increases, are what's going to the fate of a number of provisions from the 2017 Tax Reform Act, the TCJA, that are either set for expiration or significant 
change, um, including at the end of this year, there is the change to the 163J interest uh, expense deduction limitation, and also the change on the treatment of R&D, which would require five-year you know, R&D amortization. Um, and then that's followed by a series of changes over the ne next couple of years at the end of 2020. 22, um, you know, 100% bonus depreciation starts to phase out, and then the big cliff at the end of 2025 with a lot of the individual tax changes. Um, and so th those issues are certainly on our tax executives' mind. Um, you know, we try to get one of the questions goes to what 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 do they think is most likely to be addressed this year, and the the clearly R&D amortization was something that executives, you know, thought would be addressed. And R&D always has bipartisan support. I um, mean, that expires at the end of the year, so it needs to be addressed. But right behind that was bonus depreciation, and which doesn't expire until or doesn't start to phase out until the end of 2022. Um, and that was ahead of the 163J change, which is at the end of this year. And you would think kind of from a priority perspective, the 163J would be more on folks' mind. And the, the bonus thing, I don't know, Lauren, may just be a reflection of that more people are taking advantage of it and more people are concerned about it. Um, and I think it's also kind of for tax executives, like their boards and their CFOs and CEOs know about bonus depreciation. So maybe it's just kind of more on the mind. But that kind of surprised us that it was given a little higher priority than something that was expiring sooner. Yeah, yeah, I would agree. Um, I also thought it was surprising that people, almost the same amount of respondents thought that Biden's um, President Biden's campaign trail proposals would be enacted as is, as did people who thought that they would be enacted with modification, uh, which really, you know, I don't, I personally don't, don't think that they will be enacted as is. I think that there will be some, some, you know, their, their campaign proposals, but in, in reality, there are many constituencies within the, the Democratic caucus. Um, and so they're, they're going to probably have to scale some of those those items back. But it was interesting that some people were as as um, I would say pessimistic <laughs> to believe that they would be enacted as is. And Lauren, do you think that's? Uh, let's talk about that a little. I mean, is that a reflection of the fact that you know there there are two chances at reconciliation bills this year, which only need fifty votes in the Senate? And so, do you think that's a view of well, you know, Biden will have this influence and you know, kind of be able to push things through as is, and they're going to need the revenue anyway. Can you talk a little bit about the dynamic of how those, how and why those proposals, I think we both agree, will get kind of modified down, if you will? Sure. I think, you know, I think the, the common uh, perception is that reconciliation is, is an easy way to pass um, someone's legislative agenda without much opposition. And, and you know, I think procedurally, the way the rules operate, that is true. But in reality, um, there are many, many considerations that, that go into a reconciliation, the contents of a reconciliation bill. And because the Democrats have such a narrow majority, um, you know, Pre Vice President Harris is the tiebreaker in the Senate. Uh, they don't have that many uh, rep representatives on the House side either to, to, um, compose their majority. And so there has to be kind of consensus within the party about what's going to go in the bill. And that's where you start to see some some modifications to these provisions because everyone uh, within the party doesn't agree on, on how 
these these policies should be advanced. And so while the, the perception that reconciliation is an easy way to push one's legislative agenda forward um, seems to be kind of the it's the 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 public's perception. I think in reality, I know in reality um, that it takes a lot more negotiation and a lot more refinement of these ideas before they actually get into um, the bill and and get passed. One of the one of the things you mentioned in the survey is the. Um, uh, the, the new Deputy Assistant Secretary for Tax Policy in the Treasury Department, Mark Mazur, and he stated his preference that the annual Green Book process be reinstated. This seems like it's a big deal. Could you explain to our listeners what it is and, and why, why, why it matters? It is a big deal. Uh, the Green Book is traditionally published every year when the administration puts forward its uh, budget. Um, and it explains the tax provisions that that might fund um, the policy goals. And, and um, you know, it's important because if we look in past green books, a lot of, you know, they say past is prologue. A lot of what ultimately ends up uh, being enacted in some form or fashion has been previewed to a certain extent in green books, um, particularly, you know, in the domestic space and in the international space. But since I spent a lot of time in the international space, we've seen kind of the history of um, ideas kind of set forth in the Green Book. And there's a lot, and it's a great way because there's a lot more meat on the bones of, of proposals that have been kind of talked about um, in the public consciousness. And so we as practitioners, uh, as well as taxpayers are looking forward to getting more information about how the administration plans to really move forward with the um, the ideas that they, they unveiled on the campaign trail. And so when when we talk about guilty, for instance, and doubling the raid and eliminating QBI and going to a country by country um, calculation, you know, in theory, we think we know what that might look like, but then there's actual text. So we, we, we get more more of information. Um, and I will say in the last administration, there were no green books, partly because there was tax reform and there were other, you know, competing priorities. But so it's been for more than four years since we've seen a green book. And so this will be a, a welcome return to kind of regular order. And I think while people may be discouraged by the fact that it largely will be this kind of menu of, of revenue raisers and tax increases. As Lauren mentioned, it's, it's really important that there won't be statutory, you know, legislative language, but it, there will be kind of a page or page and a half description of each proposal. And so looking and just seeing kind of scope and application proposed effective dates, I think particularly in addition to guilty changes, this proposed 15% minimum tax, there are a lot of questions about how it will work. And so we won't have full detail, but I think as Lauren points out, how they're fleshed out is going to be really important, really interesting. And I think the release of the Green Book will really kick off to a large degree. I mean, we've seen some tax increases in the COVID uh, legislation, but I think the release of the Green Book really kicks off the tax policy discussion as the Congress starts moving towards a second reconciliation bill in the fall that will have, have a lot of policy initiatives. But I think it's really being thought of as one that will have a large amount of tax increases and the Green Book will really start that discussion. Mark, one of the uh, 
one of the questions I have is with respect to the timing of this year's survey is when did it come out relative to the uh, the naming of a new head of the Senate Finance Committee, <laughs> and does that and did did was there any read on that from the survey in terms of a reaction? I, you know, I don't think we had a read on it. I think um, we knew um, just because of the the term limits um, that there was going to be a change either way in the Senate, and then we were obviously waiting, as you know, Lauren mentioned for the Georgia runoffs. Um, to see who would control the Senate and therefore have the chair. Um, and so now we know it's, you know, Senator Wyden, a Democrat from Oregon, and then Senator Crapo uh, replaced Senator Grassley on the Republican side and is now the, the ranking member. And so just from a, a timing perspective, and obviously there, were, there was so much going on at the beginning of the year. Remember, we had the Consolidated Appropriations Act passed. We obviously had the January 6th Capitol attack. I mean, there was a lot of a lot of things going on, the Georgia runoff elections. Um, and so we didn't capture, you know, that kind of a reaction to widen. Um, I do think there's obviously there's a big concern about his mark to market proposal. Um, and then obviously he'll be working closely with the administration. And I think the, you know, the Green Book will, will greatly influence, you know, the, the, the agenda of the Finance Committee. And, and Lauren, on the international side, one of the things that uh, the survey mentions is uh, is Itai Greenberg being named uh, on, on on the Treasury Department. Uh, he's the de- he's the Deputy Assistant Secretary for Multilateral Tax in the Office of Tax Policy, which is actually a, a pretty important role given what's going on at the OECD and considerations of pillars one and two. So what what do we know about sort of his from his sort of academic publications and and what what, what should we expect from him in terms of 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 the US engagement with the OECD on on those those programs or proposals, I guess, pillars. I think, you know, first of all, I think it's really important that the administration has decided to kind of bifurcate um, the international tax policy, DAS, um, Deputy Assistant Secretary role into one that's going to be more focused on regulations and, and, and tax policy. And we know now that that will be Jose Murillo from EY and then this OECD work. And so, you know, Professor Grenberg has the full attention, his full attention is focused on OECD initiatives. And I, and I think that's important because it was a big job, you know, and, and um, so he doesn't have to kind of uh, split his attention. And so, you know, I think that he, he has certainly been vocal in this space. He's been very thoughtful uh, with some of his, his um, public statements and, and pieces that he's written. And, you know, some people might have, feared that a change in administration would kind of um, disrupt the negotiations and, and really um, kind of slow whatever progress we've made on that front. But I think that he is, his, his positions are consistent, certainly with respect to kind of a general application of these rules, not ring fencing certain taxpayers or certain activities. Um, we've also learned in the last week that the U.S. is... Um, abandoning its its safe harbor, its call for a safe harbor uh, with regard to Pillar 1, which is expected to kind of, you know, push um, negotiations forward and really help with with um, moving things along. And so I think that that's, that's certainly a positive development in terms does of... Mean, does that mean that they'll meet the July 2021 deadline? 
uh, <laughs> I will I will reserve judgment on that. <laughs> but I do think you know it's 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 a good it's a good indication of of the seriousness with which the administration is approaching the work um, and the commitment to to continuing the U.S.'s involvement in the negotiations. And what was the what was the overall reaction of of the in the survey to the likelihood of of the OECD getting something done in in, in the coming months? Uh, you know, I think it's funny because last year we asked a similar question, and every year it seems to be that the consensus is they'll reach consensus next year. So, um, the so their survey responses last year are incorrect. Yes, and, and you know we'll see next year whether the responses for this were correct. But um, the estimation that 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 the inclusive framework will reach some kind of consensus this year is is relatively low. Um, I would say from the respondents' point of view, and there's certainly a split in terms of all the reasons why they think the work cannot. Uh, really come to any kind of conclusion this year, which is interesting. So, um, you know, there are many, many uh, outstanding issues in terms of design, scope, um, even thresholds for the minimum tax amounts and things like that. And so there's a lot of work to be done. And, and all of these outstanding issues, dispute resolution, simplification, um, are of various levels of import to various taxpayers. And so all of them taken together really add up to a, a low, uh, low expectation in terms of, of um, consensus and unified framework, so to speak, uh, for the work. Mark, on the off chance that um, there are actually are any tax executives listening to our podcast, um, and they haven't had a chance to participate in the survey, what 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 should they do if they actually want to get in and 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 be a part of this process next year? Sure. Well, I think first, you know, downloading the current survey so they can take a look at it and see if it's something they're interested in, and then obviously just just to reach out to the firm to me personally or to Lauren. Um, to make sure you're, you're included in next year's um, survey. And we really would appreciate, I mean, getting it's really essential for us to get that the, the feedback from, from tax executives. So we really would appreciate uh, the, the more people that participate, the better, the better data we get out of it. Excellent. All right. Well, thank you both. Uh, and like I said, we'll put a link to this year's uh, survey results uh, in, in the podcast description. And as always, if you have uh, questions or comments or ideas for future podcasts, please email us at podcasts at milchev.com. That's podcasts, plural, at M-I-L-C-H-E-V.com. Thanks, Mark and Lauren. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.